Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Hello, everyone. This is Chantal Mayer Crittenden, your host for the Parley Podcast. Please forgive my voice. I have a bit of a laryngitis, but um, as you can imagine, setting up these episodes takes sometimes a few weeks. Um, So I definitely did not want to cancel, especially with this very special guest, Megan Sutton, uh, who is all the way um, in BC. So even finding a time that worked out was a bit of a struggle. So Nonetheless, uh, my voice is horrible, but please excuse it and uh, help me welcome on this first episode of the second season of the Parley podcast, Megan Sutton. So hi, Megan. Hi, Chantal. So nice to be here. Yes, I'm so glad that we get to meet in person. <laughs> I'm yeah. quotations, air quotes here because we've uh, communicated mostly via um, social media and by email thus far. So it's nice to see a face. Now, uh, thank you so much again for being here. Um, I'm going to kind of let you tell us a bit about yourself. I think you can do a much better job at doing that than, than myself. So maybe um, tell us a bit about yourself, about your, your role and your profession and um, the huge project you've undertaken the past few years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I am a speech language pathologist and I am near Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. And I am um, a speech-language pathologist who specializes in working with adults. So I have always worked in hospitals and outpatient centers that serve uh, people who have had a stroke or a brain injury or have some other kind of acquired communication disability. And in doing that work, I found that my patients weren't getting enough practice with me. So... When the iPad came out in 2010, I saw it as a huge opportunity for my patients to start working on their own outside of therapy. And when I went to the app store, there weren't any apps for them. So I started a company in 2011 called Tactus Therapy Solutions. And since 2011, uh, we've been working to build apps that are specifically for adults with communication problems, mostly aphasia, Uh, which is what happens after a stroke or a brain injury to the left side of the brain. And so over the last nine years now, I've created 20 different titles that are available on the App Store and the Google Play Store for people to practice at home, um, as well as tools for speech-language pathologists to use in their work. And that's that's amazing. I think I've been using your apps probably since 2011, 2012, and I, I use them in my classes when I teach and I, you know, like you said, there, there wasn't anything like that before. So it's been extremely helpful. And I'm very proud to say that they're, this is from Canada. So, and from a speech and language pathologist. Um, so maybe you mentioned aphasia. You said that it's something that happens after we've had a stroke and it affected the left side of the brain. Can you maybe for some of the audience that may not be so familiar with aphasia, explain a bit more what it entails? Sure. Um, aphasia is a loss of language after injury to the brain. So it can affect speaking, listening, reading, and writing. And often it affects all four of those to varying degrees. And it's not just a communication problem because it also impacts people's identity and their relationships because communication is such a huge part of how we express our identity and connect with others. So it's a really devastating thing that can happen. um, And it's quite common. It's more common than Parkinson's disease. But yet everybody knows about Parkinson's and nobody knows the word aphasia. So aphasia is one of those disorders or conditions that has a real awareness problem. There's so many people out there, but because they can't talk, they're not out there talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as speech pathologists, we have an important role in helping to elevate the profile of people with aphasia so that their needs can be met in the community with communication access. 
Yeah, this reminds me of uh, an episode that I recorded with Barbara Collier from Canadian Disabilities or Canadian Disability Access Canada or, oh gosh, I'm getting it all wrong, but CDAC, I'll have to look that up. And uh, that's what we were talking about that, you know, most people don't know a whole lot about communication disorders. And like you just mentioned, that is probably partially due to the fact that those who have communication disorders or impairments are not able to communicate their symptoms and talk about their issues. And so it seems to be a bit of a hidden disorder for the most part. And um, like you say, it's more common than Parkinson, yet we know so many people who have Parkinson and it's been in, in films and we know um, even of celebrities who have Parkinson's disease. So it's definitely a bit of a challenge for us, like you said, as speech and language pathologists to get that word out. Right. Now I imagine even families who have a loved one or even those who go through a stroke and have aphasia, it's, they're hearing about it for the first time. Yeah, well, it's not a it's not a very catchy word, um, so people don't always remember it. You know, it comes from Greek roots, um, and it's not that well understood because everybody's aphasia is different. Some people can talk really well, but they can't read or write. Others can't talk at all, but they understand everything you say. So aphasia is very different for each person, but it's important to understand that aphasia affects language, not intelligence. Mm -hmm. So we have people out there with aphasia who are as intelligent as they've always been, but when they can't talk or when they can only get a few words out, people think that they're not bright. And that can be devastating to a person's confidence, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're, they're a person who's had a career, a family, lived their life, has so much information to share with the world, and yet they're kind of trapped in their own head and the people who meet them don't understand what's happening. And they, they don't think that they're a person who's worth getting to know. And that's mm-hmm. really sad. Absolutely. It's devastating for sure. Now, maybe tell us a little bit more about your work, about all of these apps that you have designed over the years. Sure. Um, so as I said, I was doing rehab and wanted my patients to get more practice. And what I realized was that I was spending a lot of my time sort of sorting through picture cards, laying them out on a table, asking someone to point to them, and then marking down the response on a piece of paper, gathering all the cards up, and then beginning that process again. And it was really time-consuming. And we would only get through maybe 10 exercises, doing it that way. So I was like, this is the perfect thing that a computer can do. So I set to work designing an app that would do that for me, that would lay out all the pictures, select them to be perfectly matched, you know, so that there's um, things that are close and not too close, and then do the scoring. So that was the first app I created. It was called Comprehension Therapy, and it's still out there. And it's now part of an app called Language Therapy 4-in-1 which is our best-selling app that combines comprehension, naming, reading, and writing. All those basic level exercises in one app so that people can practice all of them together. Yeah, and so I'm going to put all of those apps and the links um, to the app store in the show notes of this podcast, this episode at theparleypodcast.com. Um, and so you're saying that this can be these apps can be used either by the speech and language pathologist working with the the person who has aphasia or by the person who has aphasia and and their families, right? That's right. And I think that's not always understood. Um, clinicians sometimes think of apps as something that can be just a home program. They say, you know, go go home, work on this. But I use them so often in my sessions because mm-hmm. what I do is I take those pictures and those cues and then I add on all the things that only a therapist can do, right? I teach the strategies. I demonstrate um, the partner interaction that is so important when doing those exercises. So I think they're equally valuable in the session and at home. And just for anyone who is interested, there are free light versions available. So if you want to check out the app, you can download the free light version and see what it does. And then the full version just gives you hundreds and hundreds more exercises. Mm -hmm. And I know that 
um, because our program here in Sudbury is in French, some of them are also available in French as well, right? Are there any other languages or is it mainly French and English right now? Yeah, the Language Therapy 4-in-1 app is available in English for the for North America and to the UK. So we have two different accents, um, French, Spanish, and German. Okay, that's amazing. All the other apps are in English, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that original uh, 4-in-1 is in those languages. And then when people move beyond that, we now have our advanced language app that takes all of those skills sort of to the sentence and paragraph level. And then there's a number of apps that work on specific skills. So conversation, numbers, categories, questions, uh, even some videos that you can talk along with for people who have apraxia. Okay, yeah. Now, how does one even go about creating these apps? How do you know what to include? You know, if you sit down and say, I want to create this advanced app, bundle how do you decide what you what you incorporate so i am a big fan of evidence-based practice i think we all need to be using the techniques that have been shown to work um, through research studies and combine those techniques with what our clients want out of therapy to give them their best outcomes so when i set about um designing naming therapy or advanced naming therapy, first I went to the research. So I did a a literature review to find what are the techniques that people are using to improve verbal expression. And I found things like semantic feature analysis and verb network strengthening uh, and a number of other therapy techniques And so I've taken those and incorporated them into the app to make it easier to do. And then I've written articles on my website explaining what that treatment technique is and how to do it and putting a little handout with that so that people can, so that it's easy, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have so many speech therapy treatments that are just buried in journals Mm -hmm. that nobody reads, nobody has the time or even the access, right? Mm -hmm. They're, They're very costly journals. So taking that information and making it easy to read, easy to follow, and making it freely and publicly available is also one of the missions that I have with my company. Mm -hmm. And I I must thank you personally, because like I said, I definitely use your resources a lot. And it's very, very helpful for our students who don't have the, the experience of working with people with aphasia. And so when we're describing some of these techniques, and they've never really worked with a person with aphasia, or they haven't really had a whole lot of experience, it's really nice to have, like you said, something simple. Now, you did mention your website, so that's tactustherapy.com, so I will put that on the show notes as well. Um, Now, you did talk about, um, you know, um, the, the, the verb strengthening network and semantic feature analysis, so what are these therapy techniques really doing? What do, what do we, would one expect out of these? So each technique is a little different, but what we're trying to do in speech therapy for aphasia with adults is retrain the brain. So there's been brain damage, right? A stroke is brain damage. It's when a, usually it's a clot that gets stuck in an artery and it blocks off blood flow to a section of the brain. And that section of the brain that doesn't get blood flow dies. And so if that happens on the left side of the brain, that's where language is. So the language sections of the brain die. Those cells just, they don't get the oxygen they need and they shrivel up. So what we have to do in therapy is teach other parts of the brain how to do the job that that part used to do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we do that by going to the other side of the brain. Sometimes we use the cells near it. And sometimes we regrow new nerve cells in the brain. So all of these treatments are very intensive and repetitive practice so that with support, so that the brain can do these tasks again, so that they can learn to think about a word think about the sounds in the word, the properties of the word, to be able to say that word when the person wants to. 
Yeah. And thank you for, for taking the time to explain that because like you said, um, there is still a lot that can be done even after a stroke and even after that spontaneous recovery, thanks to neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, and all of these different pathways that be, can be created or like you said, creating those new um, brain cells. So it's, I think it's very encouraging for people out there to know that despite some of those initial losses, that there still can be some work done to, to improve or to compensate for some of those language abilities that have been lost for sure. That's right. And I think, you know, after a stroke, sometimes we lose physical mobility as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, paralysis on half of the body. And so there are um, braces that people can wear. There are canes and walkers and wheelchairs that people use to support their mobility. And there are also tools that people use to support their communication. Yeah. But we don't often think about those those sort of communication ramps that we can provide people. So it's not all about the brain healing on its own. That's an important part. But another part of it is figuring out what are those strategies and supports that we can give to that person in their environment and through their communication partners to help them communicate better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, unlike the person who is walking with a cane or who is in a wheelchair or has a brace, communication impairment is not very visible. That's right. Yeah. It, it is an invisible disability, uh, but it's in many ways more disabling mm-hmm. because we don't have those supports in place. That's right. Now, since we're on the topic of communication, I ask this of all of my guests, what does communication mean to you? So I am very passionate about communication. Um, it's, it's why I do what I do. It's When I first saw a person with aphasia, I was an undergraduate at Rutgers University, and I saw this video of someone who knew what they wanted to say but couldn't get the words out. And I just looked at that and I thought, oh my God, I I can't imagine that. Like that's so awful. I need to help people who have that problem. And it matters so much to me because communication is more than just words. Right? It's how we get to know other people and how we reveal who we are and how we learn and share and connect with others. So when someone loses their language, they lose a lot more than just you know, their sentence structure, right? They lose a part of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be very, very devastating. And I think when um, we were talking, you were saying that they even lose a part of their Earlier on, you said something about they lose their identity and they lose a lot of their relationships. So it is way broader than just, like you said, losing the ability to make proper syntactic sentences. Yeah. Well, and communication is, um, you know, I, I think about my relationship with my husband. You know, what we enjoy doing is sitting around talking. Mm-hmm. Right. And we share stories and ideas and we argue about the definitions of words. And but that's our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so communication is how that happens. Mm-hmm. And when I think about when you meet somebody new for the first time and you introduce yourself and you talk about what you do for a living or what you've seen and done or what you think about things, that's how you connect with that person. It's through your words and through that communication. So those are really important things of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And communication is a basic human right, something that I say, I think, every episode. (laughs) Now, you, do you sleep? I mean, you you still work with, with patients, you're developing these apps, you're very active on your, your website with your weekly newsletter, um, how do you find time for all of this? <laughs> um, I, I am, I do work with a team, <laughs> so it's not all me. Um, as I've been building the company, I do have some people who are helping me sort of with the social media aspects and uh, the website. We have a, a number of programmers who are working on our apps. Um, and I don't get to work with patients as often as I would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am mostly working on the app development and running the company. But I get to do a number of really exciting consultations. Like I get to uh, volunteer with the Aphasia Recovery Connection, 
which is a group of people with aphasia and their families. And they're online and they do some live events. And I get to uh, go to the aphasia camp that we have here in BC every year, where we teach students how to interact with people with aphasia. And I do a lot of continuing education about how to use technology with people with aphasia and in therapy. So that's sort of been my niche that I've carved out is using technology. And uh, it's great being able to teach people how to do that and do that creatively and do it to enhance their therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, if people want to access um, some of these workshops, how can they go about it? Yeah, um, so I have a couple of courses on MedBridge education. Mm -hmm. So a lot of speech pathologists are members of MedBridge. And you'll find two of my courses there on how to use technology to help people communicate, connect, and improve is sort of the framework that I go through. For families who are looking for some of this information, I have co-written a book with Mike and David Dow that's called Healing the Broken Brain. And Healing the Broken Brain has a hundred different questions that stroke survivors and families have asked. And we went to the leading experts, the doctors, the researchers, the clinicians, and asked them to answer these questions. And then took all that information, edited it down and made it really digestible for people to read. Even if you have aphasia, it's not too hard to read. Mm -hmm. And if you're a family member overwhelmed with what's happening, uh, you can just read one question at a time. Yeah, exactly. No, I do. I have uh, that book at work and it is very useful just to kind of get a lot of the basic information and then more complex information, just everyday facts and, and information about aphasia and stroke. And so it's super helpful. Oh, now, wonderful. I imagine people who have aphasia, um, do some of them have a hard time? with the the device, the iPad or Android that they're using with some of the apps or how do you go about helping them with that? That's a great question. It very much depends on how tech savvy someone was before mm -hmm. and what kind of support they have. But the reason that I was so excited when I first saw the iPad was because it is so user-friendly right? It's so intuitive. And compared to a computer that had a keyboard and a mouse, my stroke patients wouldn't want to go up to that computer, right? That was too intimidating, too many wires. The iPad just sits there with that beautiful bright screen and you just touch it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I do think that as the operating systems evolve, it's getting a little less easy to use as it can do more and more. But what I like to do is set a goal for my patients around operating the iPad and accessing their therapy app and being able to work independently. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we would work on in therapy. How do you turn on the iPad? How do you find the right app, open the app, start the exercise, email the results, close the app? And that's something that you can do through standard practice and training. Mm -hmm. as well as with some visual supports. So on our website now, we've just released the user guide for language therapy that has step-by-step -step picture instructions that people can go through so that they don't get lost. Okay. But in general, I find it's, it's pretty easy to use. Almost anyone, I would say, can use the iPad with somebody to support them. Mm -hmm. And most people can use it independently. Yeah, and I think it's become a great means for communicating. You, like you've already mentioned, you know, they can email the results, so they can use the iPad to email, they can use the iPad to text, to check their social media, to FaceTime or Skype or whatever it may be. So it, in and of itself, it's a great tool for communicating. And then you have the app in the, the tablet to help them with those communication difficulties. So I think it's... Um, it's definitely a great tool, like you said, to incorporate in our therapy sessions as speech therapists, not just for the app itself, but for all that it has to offer around communication. For sure. I can't believe all of the things the iPad can do that we used to do with so much other equipment, mm -hmm. right? Audio recording, video recording, accessing the entire internet, 
YouTube, um, the camera. There's just so many things that that the iPad lets us do in therapy. So I would never go into a session without mine. Mm -hmm. And then I encourage most of my clients to have one or to use whatever smart technology they have for all those other functions, for memory, you know, for Mm -hmm. communicating. I've there's a, a gentleman with aphasia that I see quite frequently who communicate, who he doesn't have any words. He has great facial expression and intonation and he always has his iPhone and he pulls up his camera roll and he just shows you what he's been doing for the past week. Um, pictures of fishing, pictures of his friends and his family, and it communicates so much. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, what would you, what advice would you give to professionals, be it speech and language pathologists or, or other healthcare providers surrounding communication in your line of work? Um, it's tough because people do so many different things. But I would say that at this point, since I've worked in acute care and outpatients and in the community, and now I'm supporting people who are families who are looking for extra help. Um, I hear a lot of stories, right? I hear about, uh, oh, my therapist just pushed worksheets on me or, oh, all she did was play games. And those stories make me sad, Mm -hmm. right? Because I know that we're all in this profession to help and we want to help. So if we can all look at the person we're treating as a person who has a life and not just as an impairment that we need to fix, I think our therapy will be so much more effective. And when those people move beyond our services, they'll look back and say, oh, I had this great speech therapist. She really cared about me and really helped me improve. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just really breaking out of some of those habits that we have, right? Some of those um, older techniques that aren't evidence-based and really adopting person-centered care so that we are a real bright point in people's recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And I think you, was it yesterday or today? I'm, I'm losing track with uh, with not feeling so well, but you just released um, a handout on writing objectives that are really for people's functional needs and not just okay, well, this is what I noticed on the assessment. You're having a hard time following directions. So I'm going to you know, work on that. So I think that that might really help as well to see the person um, and everything that, that surrounds them and not just the difficulties that they're having. And I like how you, you make us think more in terms of okay, what problems are they having versus what's the goal? What's the, what do we want to do? So I, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Cause I'm really not doing a very good job at explaining it. My, my flu brain is, <laughs> is on uh, a bit of a hike. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what I, the document that you're referencing is a little ebook that I put out. Um, that's a guide to setting goals in aphasia, but it can really apply to almost any area of communication. And the idea there is, there's a lot of information in that document, but one of the things that I talk about is starting with getting to know the person first Mm -hmm. and figuring out what they want and why they're coming to therapy and then doing the assessment. Mm -hmm. Because when we do the assessment first, we learn everything that's wrong with someone, but we don't learn what problems they're having. Um, which kind of sounds the same, but it's very different. So we want to look at what is bugging that person. It may be that they can't read or write, but that they don't care, right? That's not important to them. Or it might be that reading and writing means everything to them. So we don't know from an impairment-based assessment what matters to that person. So it's not the best way to start that relationship, You know, when you think of a standardized test where you're not allowed to give any feedback, you can't help, you can't tell someone if they're right or wrong, and this is how you begin your therapeutic relationship, like, that person's going to hate you because you're mean, (laughs) Exactly. right? You have just done, you've made them do everything that is hard for them and made them feel awful about themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And then you step in and say, now, how can I help you? What do you want to work on? They're going to say, go away, leave me alone. Mm -hmm. But if we start in reverse and we say, how can I help you? What's going wrong? And then choose our assessments that give us the information we need to really help them reach those goals. Everyone's going to be a lot happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I once worked with a um, client who had aphasia, and what he had said to me was, I want to read to my grandkids, you know, yeah. and so that was such a great goal. So we were able to w- work on reading and, uh, you know, with his word finding and all of that. But the main goal, the focus was for him to be able to read to his grandkids, which I thought was was a huge motivator. Instead of saying, we're going to read uh, sentences containing, you know, seven to 10 words with yeah. one verb and, you know, all of those <laughs> others. So I think that's great advice for, for professionals who are working with um, people who have aphasia. And and like you said, sometimes it's just a matter of, of breaking those old habits and to try to take a different perspective on things for sure. And go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think when we work in the outpatient setting and especially in universities and in the community, it's a lot easier to see those functional goals. But if you're a clinician working in acute care or inpatient rehab, it can be harder because the person's not ready to say, I want to read to my grandkids. They're saying, I want to get better. Mm -hmm. So that's when it's more important that we sort of think creatively and say, okay, you want to work on reading. What is it you need to read now, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the menu that you pick from if you, if you get a menu, Um, maybe it's the, uh, you know, your medication schedule or your therapy schedule. So you start with what you have in front of you, what that person needs to do at this stage in their recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Because like you said, what we're going to work on in acute care is very different than after once they're at home and, and they've gotten over those initial struggles for sure. Now, what about um, family members? What advice would you give them or even people with aphasia? What What would that look like in terms of, I don't know, a bit of advice for them? I would say that for family members and people with aphasia, the strongest message I can give is one of hope, that the brain can change, that recovery is always possible. And that recovery may look different for different people, but you have to keep working toward what you want. Um, and what you want is might change and it might be different, but the We talked about neuroplasticity. We talked about neurogenesis. Those things happen when you work for them. Mm -hmm. So the things you practice are the things you get better at. So if you're sitting at home and not talking to anyone and just watching TV, you're going to get better at sitting and watching TV. But if you're pushing yourself and you're going out and talking to people or you're getting online and talking to people in a lot of the new online aphasia support groups, uh, you will get better at those things. And to get even better, it helps to have a speech pathologist that you're working with who can guide you and who can give you those evidence-based exercises that will really target exactly what you want to improve. And something like apps can be very helpful for getting that practice that you need. Mm-hmm. So hope, hope. Keep, keep trying, stay with it. It's not easy. Uh, it is... I I can't even imagine because I haven't dealt with stroke in my immediate family, Um, but the caregivers I've talked to and the stroke survivors I've talked to, that, you know, they are so strong because they have to be, because they're dealing with something that is so, so challenging. And that can be if it's a severe stroke or a mild stroke, Mm -hmm. because mild only means that it mildly affects the people you talk to, Mm -hmm. not that it mildly affects you. That's right. Now, um, in some of the discussions we had earlier, you talked about, so you talked about hope, which is the H in this one word that you like to use, preach. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Oh, uh, yeah. So I, this is a model I'm sort of developing right now. It's, uh, it's coming together. And preach, um, so the P-R-E-A-C-H is for purpose, respect, empathy, autonomy, confidence, and hope. 
And they're all important. Um, the ones that I would highlight, I've already talked about hope. Um, purpose is something that is really important in anyone's life, right? We're all looking for why we're here. What, what's our purpose? And a lot of people find purpose in the work that they do or the families that they raise. And when someone has a stroke, a lot of that purpose can be taken away. They're, they're not able to work anymore. They aren't able to lead their family the way they were. So they feel kind of useless. So helping someone find purpose again can be hugely powerful. And that might be volunteering at an animal shelter or um, mentoring other people who have had strokes, or it could be a new hobby like art or woodworking, you know, people find new things, but you need something to fill your days that makes you feel like you're not wasting your time. And another really important thing in that um, preach model is confidence. Mm -hmm. What good does it do if you can say a sentence if you don't have the confidence to try? Right. Right? So you, even if you have just a tiny problem with your communication without confidence, it's going to be a major problem. Okay. So we have to address how people feel about their communication, what they're willing to do, how they're going to push themselves, how they're going to react if somebody does laugh at them or not understand them. You know, what do you do with, under that stress so that you have the confidence to be yourself, to go out and to use your communication for the things that you want to do? Mm -hmm. I remember a little bit of an anecdote. I was at a fast food restaurant a while back and it was busy and chaotic and there were so many people and, you know, four or five people behind the counter. And then behind me was a person in a wheelchair who was using a uh, communication device. And it just really baffled my mind how we take things for granted because here I was, you know, ordering off the menu, reading, able to communicate what I wanted, answer the questions. Do you want this? Do you want that with it? And it all happened pretty smoothly. But this person had so many struggles. The, the person behind the counter wasn't hearing them because there was a lot of background noise. His, um, he was trying to use his speech as well as his communication device. There, there was such, so much communication breakdown, but the, the, the person with the communication difficulty persisted and, and really was able to get his point across. At one point, I thought, oh, do I... Do I help? Do I intervene? And really, it wasn't necessary. But that really stuck with me because that person probably was very confident, um, or at least it, it certainly seemed that way and was determined to get his message across. But I, it really made me think how much we take communication for granted, even when it comes to just ordering a burger and fries, you know? Oh, yeah. And he had to be super confident or at least strong-willed, mm -hmm. you know, determined to, to stick with it because... A lot of people would try that once, and if it doesn't go well, then they don't try again, yep. right? And suddenly you're eating at home all the time or only ordering takeout online. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, for sure. So. When you were giving some of your examples about purpose and all of that, it reminded me there's a really great documentary out there. It's called Speechless, and you do have to purchase it. It's not on, on Netflix or anything like that, but... If there's anyone out there who's listening and who's really interested in finding out more about the impact um, that aphasia can have on one's life, it's a great documentary. It, it takes you through the lives of three people of various ages who have aphasia and, and what it's meant for them. So I'll put the link to it in the uh, show notes as well. Yeah, there's a number of movies that feature people with aphasia. Speechless is one. There's aphasia, the movie that, um, again, I think you have to uh, buy on DVD. There was a show on Netflix called My Beautiful Broken Brain that might still be on. Yeah, that one's good as well. Um, and then there are a number of books as well. So one of my co-authors on Healing the Broken Brain is David Dow, and he had a stroke when he was 10. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. And he's now in his early 30s, and he has written a book um, about his story and his story is featured throughout our book. And he's one of the co-founders of ARC, that aphasia recovery connection mm -hmm. that's online that people can join. And that's a free Facebook group that you can join to connect with others. But 
it's the stories that stick with us, right? Seeing yep. how it really impacts a person. When you hear aphasia is a language disorder that can happen after a stroke, it's like, who cares? But when you see a person who has it or you know a family that's impacted by it, that's when it really means something. Mm -hmm. So I I do encourage everyone to to see these movies and to consider it. And you talk to so many people, or I talk to people who say, oh, my grandma had a stroke and she Mm -hmm. couldn't talk. Right. They don't know the word aphasia but they know that they, you know, they lost a part of their grandma with that stroke. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a bit of a misconception because that's often what people will say, my grandma. So we kind of envision someone who's in their 80s with aphasia, which there are a lot of people in their 80s and they have, you know, many reasons to communicate as well. But it also affects young people of all ages. Like you said, even a 10-year-old can have a stroke. And so um, it's not only elderly people who who have strokes you're right it's affecting everyone of it's it's affecting people in all age groups more and more young people Mm -hmm. for all kinds of reasons you know um there are soldiers with blast injuries who have aphasia there are young people who have um hereditary conditions a hole in the heart Mm -hmm. of malformation in the brain and they have aphasia as well. So you're right. It's a misconception that stroke and aphasia only affect the elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what would be your take home message for our listeners? <clears throat> well, I don't know who all of your listeners <laughs> are. So I hope that whoever you are, that you've heard something in this podcast that will stick with you. Uh, But my overall message, I think, is that communication is one of our most human traits and it can be devastating to lose it. So if that happens to you or someone you know, please understand that speech therapy can help, especially if it focuses on what the person wants and incorporates evidence-based treatments. So that means that we're going to be delivering targeted and intensive practice in therapy while also thinking about the whole person, building confidence, motivation, support networks, and purpose. And so as an app developer, now I am fascinated by how we can outsource much of that restorative practice to the apps and then really shine as clinicians by doing the parts of our job that only a human being can do. And that's what I hope that I've been able to bring to the world a bit through my apps is a way for clinicians, speech therapists who want to help people to do that on a much more satisfying level. And yet their, their clients are still getting the practice they need at home through that repetitive drill of technology. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, strongly encourage the listeners if they are not familiar with the Tactus Therapy apps to please go check them out. Um, You can see a lot or read a lot about them on your website, tactustherapy.com, but they're very, very useful. And to be honest, I also talk about them in my advanced language disorders class, um, which is more geared towards, you know, children zero to 18 because it's it's applicable. It's a language. And so, yes, you, you design them specifically for aphasia, but I think that just like that um, ebook that you released about the goals, language is language. And I think that a lot of what you're doing is also applicable to younger, younger kids as well, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's a, been a really interesting part of developing these apps is I've always had adults in mind uh, because there's so many apps out there for kids. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, preschool apps and learning your ABCs. And I don't want an adult to have to use a cartoony app to, mm-hmm. to relearn their ABCs. Uh, but there's been a huge adoption of these apps from clinicians who work with kids mm-hmm. who are more in the sort of seven to 15 age range. Yep where they also don't want cartoony things or kids with autism who don't want the distractions and the noises and animations of a lot of those kids' apps. So they, I know that the apps are being used uh, 
a lot with that sort of older elementary, middle school population, because as you say, language is language. Mm -hmm. There are a few things in our apps that aren't appropriate for school age kids, but we have a setting in those apps to turn those items off. It's called child-friendly mode, or it's an age adjustment so that, you know, as much as adults love talking about beer and wine or need to talk about their bra and underwear, um, the kids aren't allowed to, or it makes them giggle. So those things get taken away. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it's pretty easy to take them off. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, this is coming to an end. So I always like to ask um, my guests what some of their favorite resources are when it comes to communication. So what might yours be? Oh boy. There's so many. Um, as a clinician working with aphasia, one of my favorite organizations is Aphasia Access. And that is a newer organization that is meant to support speech language pathologists and people who serve those with aphasia from a life participation approach. And it's, it's kind of strange, um, you know, I'm often seen as this impairment-based person because I develop apps that work on impairments. But philosophically, I am very life participation oriented. So if you are working with this population, check out Aphasia Access. They have a lot of great resources on their website, and they also have a conference every two years that is excellent. I've already mentioned um, ARC and MedBridge and my website as some of the resources. And then just as kind of a weird thing I've realized lately, one of my favorite resources now are the are textbooks. Mm -hmm. And I did not read my textbooks in school. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think that some of my students are, are reading them either, but I, I tell them, <laughs> you should. <laughs> but now that I actually know what I'm doing and I go back and I look at those textbooks, I'm like, wow, all the answers were here all the time. I just I know. didn't know what to do with that information, right? Or I was too busy writing papers um, to really process it. So now I'm like loading up on some of the newer textbooks, mm -hmm. like things about right hemisphere disorder and cognitive communication um, that I didn't really get to learn about in school. And I'm finding that that really systematic organized approach to information is really helpful for working clinicians, yep. not so much for the students. Yeah. And, and I've kind of came to that realization as well as a university professor trying to, to make sure that I'm always on top of the latest. And, and someone's already done the work for you in the textbook, right? They yeah. kind of gathered all of that information and okay, this is, this is what you need to, to know. So I definitely think it's very helpful as well. So it's funny that you say that. So is there um, anything else that you'd like to add? We've covered so much. We've talked about um, a lot of your apps, which we'll uh, put the links to on the parleypodcast.com. We've talked about those resources, your take-home message, um, anything else that you want to add? Wow. Um, I can't really think of anything. It's been such a pleasure being able to share these resources. And I do realize that, you know, I've, I've been working at this for about nine years and have built up a large number of resources. And I've got a lot of exciting projects coming up that I'm very excited to share with people once they um, get released. So if, if this information has appealed to you, if you're somebody who works in this area or it's impacted your life, I encourage you to connect with me. Let me know what you need, what sort of resources are lacking so that I can create them for you. Wow. Because this really is what gets me out of bed in the morning and what I love doing. Yeah. And I think we needed someone like you to do this because it was definitely um, lacking in our line of work. There's apps for just about everything, but when it came to, and even since um, you know the development of the iPad in 2010, there really aren't that many other than the Tactus Therapy apps that are evidence-based and, and really um, designed by a speech and language pathologist for people who have communication impairments. So thank you for all the work that you do and thank you for sharing um, a bit of your time with us today and talking about some of these apps and your um, expertise and and knowledge on aphasia and communication. Well, thank you so much for having me as a guest. It's been a lot of fun. All right, thanks so much and uh, have a great day. You too. Okay.
Using the naming app from Tactus Therapy, people with aphasia are able to practice at home what they've practiced in session with their speech-language pathologist. And so I wanted to have the listeners listen to a few of the cues that are given using this app. So I chose the picture of a chocolate bar. So the person with aphasia will see the picture of a chocolate bar and is asked to name that picture. Now, surely a lot of strategies were worked in therapy, um, but if the person with aphasia is still not able to name it, there are some auditory as well as visual cues. So the visual cues will give some of the letters in the words. Since we can't hear those, I'm not going to play those today. But I'm going to play a few of the cues that are provided uh, by auditory cues. So take a listen to the first one. A candy made from cocoa beans. So here we're giving the definition of the word. So sometimes that helps the person with aphasia access that word using their, what we call the semantic repertoire. If that doesn't work, there's a different cue. Take a listen. Life is like a box of... So sometimes using sentence completion will help the person retrieve the word that is most likely on the tip of their tongue. So here we're using a very common phrase that might help activate that word in the brain. If that doesn't work, then we have different cues such as... Cha. So here we're giving the phonetic cue, so the first sound of the word. Sometimes the semantic cue, the definition or, or giving a phrase doesn't work, but giving the first sound of the word helps activate the word and helps the person with aphasia um, say the word. And if that works, or if that doesn't work, then the app will give the answer. Chocolate. So this is one of many apps that are available out there to help people with aphasia, like I said, practice at home what they've done in therapy session with their speech language pathologist.